0: All right, everyone, welcome to the Industrial Marketing Show, the number one podcast for marketers in the manufacturing space. I am one of your hosts, Matthew Shanella,
1: And I am MJ Peters. Uh,
0: and uh, I want to I welcome our um, our podcast guest, who is probably one of the like early starters of manufacturing podcasts, which is one of the reasons why I'm like uber excited to bring him on the show. Um, started his career in sales, or actually started his career in engineering, moved to sales, now he's doing marketing full-time. Um, and that man is none other than like podcast goat Chris Lukey. What is up, Chris No, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, excited to be here. MJ Matthew, you guys are doing great work. It's an honor to be on your show. Hi,
0: right, Chris, I feel like we've orbited around you for a little while. Um, you know I got a, I got a good sense of what you do. You're one of the first people I found when we started this podcast. and I was like, oh man, there's someone else doing this in, in my space. I need to kind of consume this and see what this is about. Um, But for people who don't know about you, and I'm sure there's some people uh, who listen to our podcast who don't, why don't you describe a little bit about kind of how you got started and your career trajectory to date?
2: Yeah, so the thing I've been doing for the past four years, and, and some of that overlapped with my career at Rockwell, um, is I run a podcast called Manufacturing Happy Hour, like you said. So it's the show where we talk about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers through interviews with industry experts, leaders in their space. Um started off as a video series uh, when I was a sales guy at Rockwell in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. So to provide some some necessary background around that story. I I spent the first, really the first 11 years of my career, not including some quick engineering roles I had as a co-op uh, at Anheuser Bush, spent those 11 years at Rockwell Automation as an account manager and salesperson, basically split between two different markets. Um, first half of my career I spent in Houston, Texas, serving people in heavy industries, oil and gas. Then I made a move out to the San Francisco Bay Area, where I was serving more of the high-tech industry, um, you know, custom equipment manufacturers, people that serve semiconductor. And as you might imagine, both of those industries are very different as well as kind of the way business is done and the type of personalities in those industries. So I think we all have our visions of how, you know, business is done in Texas and how business is done in the Bay Area. In Texas, you know, I was working with a lot of people that, had been at their companies for like 20, 30 years with a lot of experience. The face-to-face meeting was important, being there for the handshake relationship building. That's what drove things when I was working out in Houston, Texas for Rockwell Automation. You know, about four or five years into my career, wanted to make my way out to California, and I took a role as an account manager in the Bay Area. At the same token, you know, you think about Silicon Valley, everyone has their visions of People, you know, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, typing away behind computers, wearing hoodies. And there's some basis to that truth. You know, I when I made that move, I was calling on a market of much younger decision makers. You know, I'm 33, so I was calling on people that were essentially my age. And I had to think about it from the perspective of, all right, so I'm in this new market. You know, it's a millennial decision maker for the most part. How do I serve this group of people? And I'm like, well, the the way I consume information is I do it through podcasts. I do it through blogs. I do it through video. So one day, it was a Saturday, I was sitting in my home office and I had this idea and I pull out my iPhone and prop it up on a selfie stick that I had propped up by some books. I didn't have any of the you know, proper professional equipment, but I hit record on that iPhone, poured myself a beer and recorded a three minute video that I sent to some of my mentors and peers at at rockwell saying hey i've got this idea for a video series why don't we talk about our solutions over a beer we'll make it quick we'll make it approachable and you know it'll just be in a different format than we've done before you know i got the got the green light for my team and, and started doing that as just kind of something for a newsletter for my customers and that's really where manufacturing happy hour started and once i started sharing it on social media it started getting bigger and bigger and, and we'll share more about uh that soon. But I've been talking for a little bit. So that's how the story started. But plenty more to say on top of that.
1: Very cool. I'd like to continue exploring how that all unfolded, because I think there's probably people listening to this that are maybe at the beginning of their journey with content and are wondering how they can get started with content to grow their business, whether they're in sales or in marketing, so after you got the go ahead from your leaders or your mentors in the business, how did the initial growth trajectory of your content series kind of unfold, and what were some of the challenges early on?
2: Yeah, so the way it unfolded um you know you mentioned people listening that are getting started in their content journey. One thing that I tried to do to avoid some of the challenges I would say was I tried to keep it super simple. I did one take videos where they would last three or four minutes where I didn't have to do any editing. Really. I would just have to trim the beginning and the end and upload it right to YouTube. So, you know, one, one thing I did there was I just kept that process simple. So that way I wasn't letting kind of the technical aspects of content creation hold me up. It was really at that point, it was just on me to come up with the message and execute. Um During those first, you know, for nine months, I just sent it, sent those videos out as like an embedded attachment in emails. I had a YouTube channel, but I wasn't pushing it on, on social media. And and to be honest, it was because it wasn't like an official series, you know, it wasn't necessarily a, it you know, it, it had the look and feel of Rockwell Automation, but it wasn't necessarily run by their marketing department, for example. So I just kind of built the momentum. And then eventually I'm like, I need to start getting this out to a wider audience. It's great sending it out to my customer list in an email. But, you know, at that point, started sharing to social media, started sharing to LinkedIn. And then that's where things really started to get momentum, because All of a sudden, I had people that weren't in my account package that were starting to learn about manufacturing happy hour and starting to use it as a resource. So, you know, I would say that the challenge in in just getting started was you know, how do I keep myself motivated when I have a small audience right off the bat? I think that's a challenge a lot of people face when they're getting started is we all have these visions that like, you know, we're going to start a Joe Rogan level podcast and hundreds of thousands of people are going to listen. And that's just not reality. Um, But, you know, how I overcame the challenge of having a small audience at the start was, you know, I'd get emails back, people saying, hey, this is really helpful or people that wouldn't even write back about the video, but they're like, oh, by the way, Chris, I have a project coming up that I need to talk to you about. Thank you for reminding me that you exist and for sending that email out. So it, it just became a great way to have a frequent touch point with my customers before I started bringing it to the masses, so to speak.
0: You know, you talked about how you, you started with your distribution really small, doing email and then moving to social media um, and then finally getting gradually more qualitative feedback to let you know that you were on the right path. When was that moment for you when you, when you realized with the manufacturing happy hour, you were like, you know, what, this is a thing. Like people, people got this. When was, when was the, that moment that spark where you were like, you know, this is actually going to work and take off. Uh, Cause obviously it's a, it's a bunch of small steps, but there's probably one inflection point for you where it kind of crystallized and you were like, this is going to be, you know, my kind of long-term career
2: journey, at least, at least, uh, for right now? Simple answer to that is about a, probably about a year into it. I called the CEO's executive assistant and said, Hey, I think there's an opportunity to have Blake Moret on the show. And when they both bought into it, I'm like, all right, I think I got something here. <laughs> when you were doing it um, and you said marketing wasn't really involved. So
0: did, did marketing, have any involvement in terms of doing any QA or QC for you? Was there any like checking with them or was it just you keeping it real basic one take, like you said, and just shipping it and just kind of being really grassroots kind of with how you did it at first?
2: It was it was really more the latter. You know, I think credit to to Rockwell Automation. They've done a good job of helping people that, you know, they, re, they realize that the employees that work at Rockwell Automation are brand ambassadors, and they've done a good job of allowing other people to do those same type of things. I think with any big company, um, it's important to set some guidelines just to make sure no one veers way off of the message. But, you know, at the end of the day, people buy from people. Um, so I, I, what, what I would say was, you know, Rockwell did a great job, especially like my local teams and things like that, helping me be successful, helping me continue to do the show while it wasn't necessarily them, you know, helping me with the legwork or helping with production. You know, they started to recognize that, Hey, we can build some bigger influencer programs around this and make sure we're enabling our employees to share our message on our behalf.
0: Yeah, I think this is such an important point. This is something I see a lot on LinkedIn that people talk about, and it's 100% right. And manufacturing, industrial companies can sometimes get in their way about this. And it's lowering quality standards in your content in terms of like not get, putting it through the ringer of corporate imaging and stuff like that. I mean, your marketing team, did you did you and Rockwell, for that matter, a huge favor by being hands-off and letting it be very relatable um, and organic? And obviously, you were able to you know, articulate very well, the content that you were doing. And I just want to just reiterate for a lot of people who are looking at their content marketing, wondering why they're not going faster. It's because you're probably getting in your own way with your standards as opposed to what a huge company like Rockwell did with Chris, which just allowed him to be himself and just run with this idea and and let it, and and let it gain momentum and, and, and audience. So
1: Chris, as a content Creator, I think being in a sales role is actually, in a lot of ways, a pretty big advantage because you're dealing with customers regularly. You have an opportunity to hear about what they care about. How big of a factor was that in your success? And if it's a marketing person within the company that's trying to start creating content the way you created content, how would you recommend that they get some of those same insights that you just had kind of built in as a salesperson, as part of your day-to-day role?
2: Great question. You know, and, and so if it's a marketing person, that's starting something like this um, one thing that comes to mind for me would be that, you know, talk to sales at the end of day. I think that's always one of the biggest things we see with sales and marketing alignment. It's just a, a lot of times the groups just aren't talking to one another. Um, And and I think from from my perspective, I think having that sales background is really advantageous because even now, I really think I I have a very much a sales perspective towards marketing. My thought is, how is this getting more leads into the funnel? How is how is this generating new opportunities? And it's not always going to be a piece of content today gets a piece of content tomorrow. I think it's important, especially for salespeople doing this, to realize that there's a short term and a long term value to this. But I'd say my my biggest thing is for a marketer that's looking to do something like this, you know, recruit sales to to help out with it, where it makes sense and make sure you're articulating where it's going to add value for some salespeople um, in that regard, because salespeople have a quota to make at the end of the day. So, you know, it's, you got to tie it back to that if you're pulling in that type of assistance.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a really good point about salespeople have to have a, have to make a quota at the end of the day. And, and that's why I think it's, it lends a lot of credibility to content as a way to genuinely grow your business, that you see salespeople like yourself and other salespeople in industrial leveraging content and doing content on their own, even when the marketing team or, it doesn't exist or is not making content for them. It shows that it can create results. I'm curious how how did the results materialize? Was it kind of a trickle of a couple of deals here and there? And over what timeline did that happen before eventually it became kind of a big driver for your business and your territory?
2: Yeah, it, it did it in a couple of ways. Cause the, the unique thing was I was, you know, I had my set account package. I wasn't really out looking for a lot of new customers. So, so two things happened, you know, I would one. I would have new customers reach out. I'm like, oh, cool, this is working. Someone's seen this content, and they're like, hey, I understand you work for Rockwell Automation. Obviously, you know, I've seen you around. You know, can you help with X? At that point, it's me pointing them in the right direction to get them the help they need, and that's part of being a good corporate citizen. At the end of the day, you know, for me, it it it, it I think the biggest thing was it kept me front of mind with my customers in an authentic way that my competition was not doing, you know, I kept the newsletter going. It was a video newsletter. I had, you know, I had the social media presence. I was connected with all my customers across social media. For me, it just made my job easier of staying, you know, being the person that someone called when they had an automation project that they needed to execute on, because I wasn't just someone that came around when I needed something for lack of a better word. My goal was ultimately to provide value to these folks whether or not they were going to buy something from me you know three months later a year later or or never for that matter
0: so this this series started as a video series where you were in front of a camera with a beater in your hand you know using your phone very avant-garde um but you eventually transitioned this into behind the mic no video higher production podcast um what was the moment that made you decide to change it to a podcast? What were the factors at play? Uh, and, and frankly, like, was there any reservation about doing that because of what you were able to build with the video series? Did you think doing something a little more highly produced was going to go against you?
2: Yeah, there there was a question mark there. I think the thing that made me comfortable with it was I, I had been running another podcast before that. So while I wouldn't recommend someone start two separate shows at the same times, you know, that's what I did back in 2016. So I had to, to set the story there. I, I still run a craft beer podcast called Pubcast Worldwide, where I was, you know, talking to people over, over beers at bars about uh, the beverage industry. Um, but that's neither here nor there. So, but where I'm going with that is that gave me the confidence. Like, well, I know how podcasting works. So I had, I had already understood that. And I think the biggest thing that drew me to podcasting was I just started seeing the opportunity to repurpose podcast content, you know, beyond just the 30 minute to 45 minute audio interview. Um, And the other thing was, you know, while I while I don't regret a single thing I did with Manufacturing Happy Hour, when you're trying to fit a message into a three to four minute video, it's got to be tight. And in some ways, it can still feel like a little more rehearsed, maybe a little more like a commercial. The cool thing about podcasting is, You know what we can pull out the best three to five minute nuggets from this episode and turn those into a video just like I would have with the way I started manufacturing happy hour. So I think my answer to that question to summarize would be I just found podcasting would be longer term, a more versatile medium to use to reach people where they were hanging out, whether that was on Spotify, where they're listening to podcasts or on YouTube, where they're watching uh how to videos, or for example, throw in a 45 minute clip on, you know, social media where someone's scrolling through LinkedIn and they click it and they can engage with it where they are.
1: So obviously You had a lot of success with this series in your role at Rockwell, and now you actually have recently started your own business where you help other companies do something similar, and we'll get into that in just a second. But I'm curious, when you're looking at an industrial company with a portfolio of products and customers in certain markets, is there a way to tell whether episodic content like a podcast or a video is going to be a good driver of sales for that company or is it something that you would recommend for kind of all companies?
2: Mm, great question. Um I might need to think about that one a little longer, but here's here's my initial thought on that. I think at the end of the day with podcasting to for it to be successful at any company, it needs to be human. I think one of the mistakes that I still see With a number of podcasters is they're really focused on like, oh, well, it's kind of like what websites were, you know, 20 years ago. It's like, oh, well, our company needs a website. Everyone has a website. We need one. Now everyone's like, oh, well, everyone has a podcast. We need a podcast. And when you're treating it as a checkbox like that, it can turn into, you know, a feature benefit show. That's not all that engaging or it, you know, you, you like kind of tap someone on the shoulder at your company to host it. That's really not into it. You know, when it's treated like a check the box activity, it will be a check the box activity. On the flip side of that, when you get someone that's passionate about it, and I'll I'll point to an example here, um, there's a distributor out East called Eco, E-E-C-O, Electrical Equipment Company. Um, They have a show called Eco Asks Why, and I think it's one of the most perfect examples of how a good company podcast can be run, where they have a host, Chris Granger, that's very passionate about, about the topics, and their show is not about the product. They're very specific in what they say. It's like, this is about people and ideas. We're not here to talk about the product because, you know, I think... They, they realize and I think most people that, that get podcasting realize we're competing against, you know, folks like John Lee Dumas from Entrepreneur Fire and folks like Noah Kagan and all and, and, you know, big time shows like The Daily. Obviously, we have our niche audiences. But at the end of the day, if we're putting a podcast that's not engaging, that's not going to keep you listening from start to finish, it's very easy to tune out and go listen to something else.
1: Yeah, I think that's such a good point about companies thinking of podcasting like a box they have to check. And I think part of it is some of the people who have been successful with the medium are promoting it as a really great thing that you can do right now. And I don't think people are really thinking it through. They're thinking uh, that the ta- just doing the tactic and checking the box is going to be enough, but there really has to be passion and strategy behind it. So Would it be accurate to say that one of the things you can look for to determine whether podcasting is going to work for your business is whether you have the talent on the team and people passionate about the subject just as an internal core competency that'll help you succeed?
2: I think that is a very important criteria. I think if you're trying to force fit something into a show in any fashion, whether it's the topic, whether it's the host... um, it, it, it's not going to be natural at the end of the day. So if you have someone that that has that, that talent or someone that's good behind the camera, I mean, I think most companies have done enough media before where they're like, you know, this person could be good at this. Let's see if they're up for it. Um, yeah, I think the thing you don't want to do is force fit. So I, I agree with you, MJ. It's about finding... Um, you know, it's about, find, you know, having someone that, that can do that. I think I'll expand on that real briefly as well. I think the other thing that we might see more of, and I think this would be a mistake, is kind of outsourcing that to someone that really doesn't understand the business or outsourcing it to a, doing air quotes here, like influencer or something to try. Again, it's, it's the same thing, force fitting. Don't try to force fit it if you want it to work.
0: Do you also think that I think about this a lot for for our clients when um when because we we do podcasting for clients um when it's a good fit. But I always think about it from the standpoint of intent. Like, what's the intention of doing the podcast? Are we trying to build relationships with key in, with with key decision makers at companies we want to work with? Is it to try to build a sense of community? Uh, that really comes back to. I, I love I love to get your thoughts on that first off, but just to circle back to that like when you started the manufa- when you started the the manufacturing happy hour when you were with Rockwell like what was your primary intent when you when you did that and and how would you how would you relate that to what you see with the few
2: manufacturers out there that are doing podcasts right now good question so when i was starting it you know i kind of talked to my intent of be you know one the pragmatic aspect it was the way to reach my customers where they were and how they consumed content through video you know, the other thing I'll say to it is and I feel like, you know, Joe Sullivan over at Gorilla 76, you know, Matt, I know you guys both know him. Um, but, uh, he, you know, he when he talks about content strategy and things like that, he talks about playing to the mediums that, you know, play to someone's strengths. Like, you know, hey, do we interview so-and-so and write a blog post based on what they said? Or, you know, is this individual good on camera? Let's do a video with that person. For me, you know, I had played in cover bands and things like that, like, you know, six years before that. I'd kind of put that on hold, and I'm just like, I would love to get back on camera. Like, that plays to my strengths. It plays to... You know what I'm good at so you know one one part of it for me was it's like this is this is a medium that I'm strong at that I haven't been utilizing and I should all the all the signs point to this continuing to grow um so that was that was a, a big part of of why I started it and I think there there's another part of your question that I'm missing there can you remind me of what that was Matthew yeah generally like when you're looking at manufacturing
0: podcasts right now like do you see for the most part, the intent is good? Or, or do you think they're doing it for the sake of it? And, and, and do you, and just, what is that? What is, what, what impression does that give it, does that give you about podcast that it's an early medium for a lot of manufacturers or that maybe for these specific individuals, it's not really a good fit?
2: Yeah, I think it's more on the early medium side. I think, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say, I, I think any company that's intentional about it um, maybe I'm making an overgeneralization here, but I think most people w- can find a way to make it work or there is a way to make it work for their company. Um, But I think it's just early enough. And it's, it's also kind of in, I think we're if there's such a thing as a check the box phase, I think we're in that check the box phase where everyone wants to jump on board with it without giving it a lot of thought. I think. Over time, people will hone that in. Again, I'll use the website example. I, you know, m- there are still cases out there, obviously, of people that don't have very functional websites. But I think people have gotten it over the past years, past decades, etc. I think that will continue to evolve with podcasting, and and I don't think it's an, it's limited to the manufacturing space either. I think you look at any industry, there are people doing podcasts out there right now that, um. You know are doing it as the check the box. they're not doing it from the standpoint of how do I provide value, how do I build relationships, how do I connect with influencers. Because that was a great point you made, Matthew, about how, you know, what's the intent of doing the show? Because the reality is, I've been talking about it from a sales perspective so far in terms of, you know, reaching my customers, but that's only one benefit of doing a podcast. The network you make, the type of, you know, decision makers you're able to connect with by featuring them on the show, the type of community you're able to build. There are so many reasons to do a podcast beyond just the benefit to top line growth.
1: So I want to wrap up with a couple of questions about a big transition you recently made in your career, and you actually left Rockwell and you have started your own business helping other companies benefit and launch their own long-form episodic content and demand gen programs. So tell me a little bit about why you made that decision and what you see as the opportunity there.
2: Yeah, I I think there's always been an entrepreneurial side to me in some ways. I'd I'd spent my whole career working at a large company and I was I was at the point where I could take that risk. And, you know, from a personal standpoint, I knew down the line I'd regret it if I didn't take that chance. Um, The other thing was I, I just saw the market for it. I had, you know one major client and then a handful of others that were already tapping me on the shoulder to to help out with these things I'm like all right if people are asking for this you know I need to figure out a way to serve this market come up with systems to help people launch this type of content and and create it in a way that that fits their brand and, and in a genuine entertaining and informative fashion i think one another thing i see people missing is that a lot of podcasts and a lot of content in general is overly tactical and there needs to be an entertainment aspect to it as well. Because again, going back to the point that we're competing with attention from other podcasters, let alone other mediums, like there needs to be a reason that people are engaging with it. And, I, you know, I in have having that initial set of clients that, you know, ultimately gave me a bit of a, a safe landing spot to jump into this as well as just realizing that I've been spending four years doing this and that I'd come up with a set of tools that, you know, had worked for me that I think at the end of the day, I want to help companies launch content faster, like get, get the quick strategy in place and then start to execute. Um, and, and really that, I think that's been the benefit of doing it as a sales guy. That's whole time. It's been a DIY effort. Um, I'm still able to pull off with quality. And I think that's where the next opportunity for content is coming in. You can do it fast and you can still do it quality. And that's where I'm helping out industrial clients right now.
0: Yeah, I think you you said a word that resonated with me a lot because it's something that a lot of industrial companies struggle with in their content. And that's making your content entertaining. Um, There's very few companies in the manufacturing space who do that. Um, and most of the people who actually do do it from my perspective are people who aren't associated with companies at all. They're just kind of doing their own thing as a side project. So uh, you at the Manufacturing Happy Hour, I think of Todd Klauser, MJ with wall.com as another great example of someone who makes really entertaining content that is also super helpful and educational. So I guess this is probably a question I would have loved to have asked Todd when we had him on too, MJ. But Chris, I'll ask you since uh, you seem to have a good pulse on this um how how would you recommend manufacturers make content that's entertaining
2: you know i think that's a great question i'm glad you asked that here my i this isn't a cop out answer i think it's it might be easier than we think i i just try to picture of i try to picture what's going to make me continue to listen or what's going to make my audience continue to listen i'm really trying to think of what are the things that draw me to a particular band or draw me to a particular piece of art or draw me to a particular movie? I know I'm getting a little artsy with this answer, but I'd say it's think about the things that entertain you and get you to stick with something. Because at the end of the day, there are ways to make something entertaining and educational. I mean, the reference we use in this industry all the time is how it's made. There's a reason that show is so successful because it's cool to see like industrial equipment making a chocolate bar or making a car. Like try to think of, you know, maybe do like a whiteboard session to figure out what are the things that are most entertaining or sexy or cool about what we do and how can we weave that in to our overall message.
1: Chris, I want to wrap up by asking you if anybody's listening to this and they'd like to get in touch with you to get some help launching a new content initiative at their company, how would you suggest that they do that?
2: Um yeah, for getting in touch and if they're looking to launch a new initiative at their company, I mean easiest way for me is LinkedIn. I love saying, "Hey, connect with me on LinkedIn." Um Chris Lukey, last name is spelled L U E C K E because honestly, Rather than give out an email address or a website, I think LinkedIn is where you can see, you know, all of us really practice what we preach because you guys are great on there. You're posting great content all the time. I like to think I'm trying to to pull my weight in that regard, too. So as a way to start that conversation and engage on a regular basis, that's the best spot.
0: All right, y'all, that is Chris Lukey um, content maker and podcaster extraordinaire. I mean, just uh, the host of the Manufacturing Happy Hour, the host of PubCast Worldwide, which I would gladly accept an invite to at
2: any point in time. Um, (laughs) Chris, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Cheers, guys. Yes, we will need to grab some beverages when we can do this in person again. Yes, for sure. I would like
0: that very much. You can catch The Industrial Marketing Show on all of the major podcasting platforms, including Apple, Spotify, and Google. Please subscribe to The Industrial Marketing Show. Please leave us a five-star review. Please leave us a written review. Please hit up MJ and myself at any point in time if you want to be on the show. If you have a question, if you have a topic that you want us to dissect, um, we'd definitely love to get your feedback. We're always looking for great ideas to, to dive into. Um, and with that, um, I am Matt. And I am MJ. And this is The Industrial Marketing Show, guys. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day.